So we're in, I know we're in a Psalm 23 series, and you're like, what's up with John 21? You'll see in a moment. So we're in a series in Psalm 23. Uh, it's hard to believe we're still at like verses 2 and 3, and like, this is going so slow. <laughs> I'm not used to this. At Bethany, we read like wide swaths of Scripture, and now it's like microcosm. So it's been, are you enjoying that? Is that fun or good? Um, well, we're going to look at Psalm 23, verses 2 and 3 this morning. And, and this, you'll see how this John 21 passage, I just thought it's such a beautiful little story. Uh, fits in in a moment. But let me ask this question. Who, who here has heard of leadership? <laughs> like, raise your hand. Who hasn't? <laughs> like, of course you have. Uh, you've been at a leadership conference. You've read a leadership book. You've listened to your, you have your favorite leadership podcast. Maybe some of you have like a coach, leadership coach. So let me ask this. Um, Who's heard of followership? There's a couple. Yeah, some of you that are really on the ball. Like, you, who's been to a followership conference? All right, you have, a, like, your favorite followership book that you're reading right now. Can't wait to tell your friends about. Or you have your favorite followership podcast. It's, the truth is, very few of us, I mean, like, think one. I'm glad you're here today, Nate. One person raised their hand. Um, it's not in the dictionary. If you look it up. There's no, it's like the red underline on all my notes this morning, followership, followership, followership. It's not, and it's not just some word I made up. So followership is this discipline. It's in organizational psychology, pioneered in the late 80s um, by this guy named Robert Kelly. And uh, he coined this term in 1988 in the Harvard Business Review. And you can look, look up the article. And he listed the qualities of a good follower. He said it's, it's one who's committed to per, uh, a purpose, a principle, or a person outside of themselves. And, and, and their, their qualities are courage, honesty, and credibility above influence, inspiration, and ingenuity, okay? Things that we might say are leadership qualities. They're all about courage, honesty, and credibility. So followership, if you just put it in a little nutshell, is about service over and against sort of status, okay? Like what's in it for me? Not followership. Now, if you want a picture of what followership really looks like, go no further than Seattle Sounders. I'm not a Sounders fan. I'm not a soccer fan. I got cut from my third grade soccer team. That's a story for another day. I don't think there were cuts then. That's how bad I am at that game. Uh, I think the Sounders are great. They're good for Seattle. How many Sounders fans are here this morning and now you're just going to walk out? You can walk out. It's good. They're all good. Uh, But there's probably been no other game on the history and the history of games that explains followership better than soccer. Because, see, the thing that makes soccer the so-called beautiful game, I've heard it called that, is not leadership, though I think a coach is essential. Like, you can't, I don't, maybe you could do without the coach. I don't know. And great strikers and goaltenders are important. The, the swoosh of the ball in the net, though it gets a lot of noise, I mean, like, what's up with that? Like, it's just one goal, and there's only one goal. Um, like, most games end in 0-0 ties, Right? That's not the point, okay? That's not what makes this the beautiful game. Instead, it's this intricate ballet of patterns and passes and every player kind of anticipating the other's strengths and weaknesses. Are you with me? The needs of each player, maybe having the ball for a brief moment, losing it to the opponent, getting it back. That's what makes this game so beautiful. It's this big dance on the, the grass. And if the popularity of our sports, our big sports, are any indicator kind of, of of our values, we, we rely much more deeply on leadership, the so-called soloists, the Tiger Woods of the world, the LeBron Jameses of the world, though he's become a great passer this season, um, than we do on the followers, like whoever's on your soccer team, your favorite soccer team. 
Um, and we see this exhibited in all kinds of pursuits, not just sports, like in our politics, in our media. Remember the rock jocks of the 1980s? In our corporate world, you know, especially with the big names, I don't need to go to high school anymore. I'm just going to be a zillionaire, you know. And in our churches, we literally, I'm not kidding, we have rock star pastors now with tattoos and like scoop net t-shirts, you know, like if that's why you're here, that's not me. So just so you know, okay. Um, so bold visionaries, that's the idea, so-called leaders. And it's kind of part of the American DNA, isn't it? To kind of be, to rise above the crowd, to stand out. I read this article in the New York Times recently um, by Susan Cain. She wrote this book my wife loves and recommended to me, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, because I just talk a lot, if you didn't know. And she tends to be a little more, uh, she has a greater economy with words. So she has um, this article, Susan Cain, called Not Leadership Material. Good. The world needs followers. And in the article, uh, she's tracing uh, the leadership, quote-unquote leadership, as a metric for college admission. So like, you know, you fill out your application, and there needs to be some leadership things you've done in order to get into colleges. So here, I'll just read from the article. It's a great article. You can find it on the New York Times website, or you can take my copy afterwards, but there's only one. In 1934, a young woman named Sarah Pollard applied for Vassard College. In those days, parents were asked to fill out a questionnaire, and Sarah's father described her truthfully as, quote, more a follower type than a leader, end quote. The school accepted Sarah, explaining to her dad that it had enough leaders. It's hard to imagine that happening today. No father in his right mind, if the admissions office happened to ask him, would admit that his child was a natural follower. A few colleges would welcome that person with open arms, but today we prize leadership above all else, and nowhere else more than in college admissions. Harvard's application informs students that its mission is to, quote, educate our students to be citizens and citizen leaders for society. Yale's website advises applicants that it seeks the leaders of their generation. Princeton, my alma mater, leadership activities are the first among equals on a list of characteristics for would-be students. Even Wesleyan, (laughs) known for its artistic culture, was found by one study to evaluate applicants based on their leadership potential. And though admissions officers, she goes on to talk more about this, but though admissions officers will tell you that their quest for tomorrow's leaders is based on a desire for positive impact to make a world, the world a better place, many students that Susan Cain says she spoke to read leadership skills as code for authority and dominance and define leaders as those who, quote, can order other people around. According to one prominent Ivy League professor that she talked to, those students aren't wrong. Leadership defined by their admissions process seems to be restricted to political and business power. And then she goes on to tell the story of one young woman who told her about her childhood. As a happy, young, enthusiastic reader, a student and a cellist, until freshman year of high school, listen to this, when college applications began to loom, and suddenly her every activity was held up against this sort of holy grail of leadership. And then she recalled, everyone knew it's not the smart people, not the creative people, not the thoughtful people or the decent human beings— that scored application letters for schol- and scholarships, but the leaders seen that no activity, no accomplishment meant squat, that's her word, not mine, unless it's somehow connected to leadership. So this young woman tried to overhaul her personality freshman year of high school so she'd be selected for a prestigious leadership role as a freshman mentor. She made the cut but was later kicked out because she wasn't outgoing enough. Isn't that sad? Uh, and that's, like I think, a commentary really 
stunning commentary on the state of our society and our values. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying leadership is bad. I, I love reading leadership stuff. It's like, you know, leadership books all the time on my list. And I love learning about it. But what Susan Cain is saying, what Kelly is saying before her, you know, if we define ourselves as that, is that's our number one value in life? There's, we risk losing our souls. It's very corrosive. It can have a corrosive effect on our psyche and our human, our human soul if we're always wanting to be out front, in front, right? And so great, you say. <laughs> Thanks for that. little pump me up. Uh, what does that have to do with my faith? And that's a good question because it has everything to do with your faith, actually. Um, did you know that Christian discipleship, the Bible really is all about followership, cover to cover. So you start in Deuteronomy, which is near the beginning, beginning of where God starts to reveal the law. Here's what God says to Moses and then the Israelites in Deuteronomy 5. You must follow exactly the path the Lord has commanded you so you might live. And then later in Deuteronomy 13, the Lord your God you shall follow, him alone you'll fear, his commandments you keep, his voice you shall obey, him you shall serve. I mean, it's all about following. Flip forward to the New Testament. What do you find? Jesus' very first words to his disciples. What are they? Follow me. Very first words out of his mouth. 35 different times, actually, in the Gospels, Jesus says, follow me, follow me, more than anything else. Nor perhaps more, this is where John 21 enters in, than this story with Peter. His last words to Peter, follow me. Why is Jesus so interested in this idea? In fact, Jesus, as I studied this, used the word leadership just one time in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 22, it's at the Last Supper. His disciples were actually arguing amongst themselves, like, who's his, who's his greatest disciple? You know, when Jesus enters into power, who's going to be on his left and his right? Who's going to be his sort of secretary of state and his vice president? Who's going to be, yeah, who is it, right? Who's the most gifted? Who's the best leader? And you know what Jesus says, Luke twenty two twenty five. the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them need to be thought of well, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest. The leader, one time he uses that word, the leader, the one who serves. Interestingly, the word he uses there for leader is the Greek word, uh, other translations say ruler, hegeomai. And we get an English word from that, hegemony. Do you know what hegemony means? Domination. Control through the use of power. Jesus says, don't, don't relate to each other that way. And that's kind of leadership. Uh, instead, he says serve. Now, interestingly, that word serve that he uses is also a word we have an English word for. It's diakonoe, or where we get uh, the word deacon from, which literally a deacon is a waiter. Go to Olive Garden or go to anywhere. That's a deacon. They wait upon you. They attend to you. They serve you. And Jesus is saying that's a picture of Christian leadership. It's actually followership. Discipleship, following Jesus, is all about serving in fact, one person said to follow is what it means to be a disciple. That's it. You're just following. <laughs> Today, because there's this dissonance between what we seem to value and what we are being invited into as Christ followers, I want to unpack that notion of followership with you. And we're going to use these couple phrases from Psalm 23, verses 2 and 3. So let me read those real quick just to catch you up to where we are, and then we'll dive in. So it says in verse 2 and 3 that the Lord, our shepherd, my shepherd, leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And then in verse 3, he guides me along right paths. And then it says, for his name's sake. So there's the two kind of concepts. He leads me besides quiet waters. 
That's the witness of Scripture we have here is that we're first followers. And then he restores my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. So we're going to unpack kind of those two aspects of followership, what it kind of looks like to follow Jesus, how that shapes our lives, how it might impact the world around us, our workplaces, our families, our neighborhoods, okay? So first, he leads me beside quiet waters. Uh, there's a big theme in this verse of rest. Richard talked about this last week, so if you weren't with us, his sermon from last week's up on our website. You can watch it. And we kind of have verses around that, like Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I'm God. Quiet waters, right? Um, Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heaven laden, and I'm going to give you rest. So the shepherd's doing that. So rest is a big part, vital part of our relationship to God. We all need to be in a rhythm of work, rest, work, rest, right? And yet at another level, what, we're under, what I understand to be the point of this verse, he leads me beside quiet waters, uh, is, is restoration. So we rest, I mean, rest is actually in there, <laughs> for the purpose to experience restoration. Okay, so let's, here's what restoration looks like. There's actually three Hebrew words for leadership or shepherd leadership that are used in the Old Testament, two of which are used in this psalm. So there's nakah, which is in Psalm 23.3 here. It's a straightforward guidance word. You have a shepherd leading uh, sheep. So in, we'll get to verse 3 in a minute. Um, that's the nakah. That's just a basic leadership word or guidance word, okay? Then there's nahag, which is this more directive word. You, it's not used in Psalm 23.6, but you kind of get the picture of it. It's when a shepherd would go to the back of a flock. Sheep are apparently stubborn. Are they? Are there any shepherds here? I just read this stuff in commentaries, so I have no idea. Like, uh, but apparently I, when sheep won't go, they get to dawdle, they, they're stubborn by nature. What the shepherd would do is go to the back, nahog, and lead from behind, almost like scare the sheep forward. And so in Psalm 23, 6, we don't have a God who's scaring us for it, but it says, goodness and mercy follow me. So you have the shepherd leading from behind. And then there's this third word, nahal, which is leading with tenderness to a watering station or guiding to a watering place. And this is the word used in Psalm 23, 2 here. He leads me beside quiet waters. It has to do with moments when sheep are, in, are, are not, moving, not moving stubbornly, but really exhausted. You know, they're tired they're thirsty, uh, and the shepherd, Nahal, has to know a different type of leadership. This is a different moment. Like the sheep, if I don't get them something vital to their well-being right now, water, they'll die. So I have to, but I have to lead in such a way that they'll want to get to that water. And so the Nahal word even sounds like Naka, Nahag, and then Nahal. It's even more of a tender word. It's a, if you can imagine showing empathy toward a sheep, it's like an empathetic word. So it's, it's really tender leading is kind of the idea. He tenderly leads me beside quiet waters. Now the key here with Nahal, tender leadership, is it's always for the purpose of restoration. The point is getting to the water, uh, returning to and the state of well-being that, that you're naturally at when you have enough water in your system. And thus, uh, it means that God's working when you apply this to our own lives in our deepest parts to return us to our stated purpose. In fact, um, in Romans 2 verse 4, Paul sees this picture. He says, God's kindness, you might say is nahal, he doesn't use the word there, is intended to lead us toward repentance, to return us to the way we were created to be, okay? So there's this vivid illustration of how this looks in the lives of sheep, okay? And I just want to show you this real quick, a really stupid video. Uh, it's it's Let's just watch. It's some guy on his, on his iPhone. It's really short. Go off. 
And there's, yeah, there's your sheep. So, and it goes on for like 20 seconds. I think he was hoping the sheep would thank him. Yeah. Because he just waits for the sheep to come back and like, hey, you're welcome. Uh, so you can turn it off. I mean, I was hoping for more laughs, but whatever. Uh, so the idea is that um, this is called when a sheep gets cast. So they'll apparently, uh, sometimes they're built in such a way that if they get too much wool and their wool gets wet and they get whatever, full, too full of water and things like that, carrying too much weight, they'll, they'll, they'll flip over on their backs and then they just lay there with their kind of paws in the air. And there's some really, by the way, there's, I've watched, this is, this is the shortest and the, the funniest of the videos. I watched some really sad ones this week, like where it sounds like the sheep is going to die and you're just, you want to turn it off because it's like a horror movie. And they're kind of like, they're kind of bleeding and their passageway is getting cut off because they're trying to get up and they can't. It's like a turtle on their backs. And, the, and sometimes I read that sheep will lay there for days until they die if they don't have a shepherd to flip them back over. Like this guy apparently was just driving down the road and saw the sheep in the field. Like, I got to save this sheep and flips it over. Um, that's called the cast position or the cast down position for sheep. So the shepherd in the ecology of this metaphor that, that David understood, he's restoring the cast down sheep. He's reassuring it. He flips it over. He's probably massaging its legs. It's been there for a while. Maybe squeezing out the wool. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, trying to help it get back on its feet again. And that's the picture he has. He restores my soul. Picks me up. Writes my life. Puts me on my feet. Removes the things that are weighing me down so I can walk again. Now, it's, it's critical that in the ecology of this, it's not just restoration to let the sheep run across the field, but it says he, he restores my soul. He leads me beside quiet waters, okay? So what's that about? I mean, talk about a terribly mixed metaphor. You have this sheep getting put on its feet, and then you have water. What's this all about? Um, well, there's this profound example, I think, of where this actually happens in the Bible in John chapter 4. Um, it's not a sheep and a shepherd, though you, you could argue there. There is a sheep and a shepherd here. You'll know the story because uh, there is water. There's this woman at the well. And I was really reflecting on this this week, and it, it started to kind of really make sense to me in the context of Psalm 23. You have, we all know the story, this, this story of, of Jesus going through this area. He's going back to Galilee uh, where he was doing his ministry. And it says he had to go through Samaria, and he was tired as he was going through Samaria. So he stopped at this well, Jacob's well, for a drink. Of course, the story goes... Another tired person came up to the well, the Samaritan woman. And, and uh, Jesus apparently didn't have a means to draw water. So he asked her for a drink, which apparently led to this argument that they had about boundaries and customs and religious and ethnic boundaries there. Jewish men and Samaritan women did not talk, especially in public in those days, absolutely did not interact, and let alone ask for water. And so this conversation, which ends with Jesus giving her this Famous living water declaration, I'm living water. And then she asks for that water so she'd never thirst again. And, what is, and then this non sequitur, that if you don't understand this in the context of, I think, Psalm 23, you kind of wonder why Jesus says this. He says, go call your husband. Isn't, I mean, he's, she's asking for water. He says, go call your husband, you know, and then come back and get water. And she, of course, says, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus says, yeah, you don't have a husband. You have, you've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Now, see, I've always heard this preached and taught as Jesus kind of calling this woman out. How many of you heard that this way? Jesus is calling her out. He's exposing her sin, which is interesting because that's absolutely wrong. 
Absolutely wrong, if you've ever heard that. And I've taught that before. Because, see, in that day and age, not only were men and women prohibited from talking and interacting in public, but women were prohibited from divorcing men. So she's been divorced five times. Does this make sense? She's been left. Men had all the power. Then they have a lot of power now. And Jesus is not exposing her for that. He's, he's instead connecting with her. He's saying, I know you've been rejected five times. I know the guy you're with now doesn't even have the guts to marry you, the decency to do so. You've been tossed out, cast out. You're cast. <laughs> you're there alone at this well, not quite a sheep, but I mean literally just dying. Your soul is dying. You're downcast. This isn't God wagging a finger at a lonely woman. This is God saying, you know, he's not saying, you sinner, I see you. <laughs> Get your life right and then I'll give you some water. He's saying, I'm going to wait. That's good. Open doors and windows if you want. I know it's warm. Those can open too. Uh, He's saying, I know you've been cast off over and over and over and over and over again, so much so that you are in disrepair. Uh, your, Your life is just drying up, but I connect with you. I have the courage to connect with you. I'm a man, you're a woman. I have the courage to connect with you. Uh, isn't it, and it's just another remarkable story of a, a man, a Jesus who meets this person. This is all of us, right? I mean, this is, I had this still water moment in my life. She comes to still waters. You know what I'm saying? And Jesus says, no, no, I'm your shepherd. I connect with you. I want to restore you to who you're supposed to be, your dignity, your purpose. I had the same kind of moment in my life in 1997 I was out of, just out of college, and I, I took out a college loan at UPS, you know, to make an education affordable again. So uh, I took out a loan just to get through it. And, uh, and I also got a couple credit cards. They're always there in the student union building handing out credit cards. So I got a couple credit cards and bought some stuff. And I'm living on my own, working at Barnes & Noble. There's a job for you. You know, I've got a bachelor's from UPS in Barnes & Noble. And living in the U District and uh, not able to pay for everything, so I had to kind of pick and choose what I was going to pay for. I'm not recommending. This is not financial advice. So, so I decided not to pay on my student loan for quite a while. It went on for a couple of years. And, uh, and suddenly I started getting calls from, uh, first was the student loan agency, and then collection agency. And then I went into default. And I was off at Barnes & Noble one day, and one of my roommates um, happened to get the phone call. This is back when they had phones. Remember this? The landlines? Got the phone call. And so I was in a co-ed house through university president, and she was there. Her name's Janie. When I came home from work and waiting for me, I was like, why are you home today? You shouldn't you be at work? She said, well, no, I got a phone call. Well, I picked up a phone call for you today from this collection agency, and uh, they've repossessed your car. I had this nice pathfinder. I was paying on that. They repossessed your car. I was like, oh. And she knew all my stuff. And the interesting thing for me is she sat me down and said, Jack, you cannot run from this. You cannot. You, you, you must not. And, uh, and she said, hey, I want, I'm gonna, you're going to make that phone call today to them, and they're going to probably freeze your bank account. It's going to be ugly, but I'm here, and I'm, I'm with you. I'm for you. Um, and I was able to do it. I mean, really, Janie just sat with me literally on this futon. I f- called them up, and it was hardest, one of the hardest things I've ever done kind of admit I kind of failed. Tell my parents, yeah, kind of failed. 
and I was totally downcast in that, burdened, and yet it was this young friend who said, hey, kind of flipped me back up and said, hey, let's, let's keep moving here. Um, does that make sense? And we're all in that way, downcast. Like we're burdened by rejection. We're anxious about our future. Uh, we have varying degrees of shame. And God is saying in, in this story of the woman at the well in Psalm 23, I, I meet you, I lead you to still water, a place of refreshment, a place of deep connection. I'm always about connecting with you with the promise of restoration. I'm always about connecting with you with the promise of restoration. I mean, you want to know why have, you have a quiet time in the morning? It's the promise of restoration. That's what God's about. So how might look, that look in your life? Well, I, I, I would suggest start asking yourself, why and where am I downcast? Like, what restoration needs to happen in my life? Maybe it is around your finances. Maybe it is in your marriage. Maybe it is with your, uh, your hope for the future with, as you raise, raise kids in this complex world. Ask God, where am I downcast? Where am I that sheep? You know, like, uh, you know, I can't, I can't figure it out, God. I can't think my way out of this one. I'm, I'm definitely stuck. And then confess that to God, vulnerable, weak, realizing that God's not there to expose you. We're not going to stand up here and like, yep, you, 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 and you. Exposure. No, God's there to connect with you. I see you. I know you. I love you. I'm willing to do that. And, and so then you can say, if you have a view of God like that, hey, God, this place in my life is a place of ruin. I have no future. I'm cast. My health is failing. Finances, marriage, all the politics, social unrest around us. I'm depressed. <laughs> I mean, could you say that? I God says, I connect with you, and I'm here to restore you. God, restore my soul. I mean, my, each of us begin to see God with that, those eyes as a God who de desires to connect and restore. That's our God. So that's what this first one's about. God leads us to quiet waters for the purpose of restoration, rest for restoration, okay? Here's the second thing I want to talk about. So we're following God. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake, okay? And uh, in case you're doing the fill in the blank in the bulletin, this, he guides us toward our destination here in order to understand our identity. So rest for restoration, destination for identity, now, some translations put this verse, he leads, me, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Have you heard it that way before? Right paths, righteousness? The key here is to not misunderstand this as uh, David talking about doing right, like behavior modification paths or moral conformity paths. You know, not lying, not cheating, not stealing paths. I mean, that's all good, and it's in the Bible, but... It's, that's not what he's talking about. And by the way, they're also not social justice paths. That's good too. Rwanda, all the work we do there, that's justice. There, God is a God of justice, but that's not what David's talking about. He's not talking about behavior modification paths, doing good stuff paths. That's not this, okay? Here's what he's talking about. Righteousness, the word is sedak. It, it, it basically signifies, a, if you think of it in terms of this path, a, in contrast to crooked paths, a straight path or a level path. You'll see this all over the, all over the Bible. Level paths, not too, hot, not too bumpy. You know what I'm talking about? So it'd be like saying to Siri, what, you know, hey, well, I guess Siri could have different paths. Anyway, Siri never takes you where you want to go, right? So it's always the wrong path. So it's like going to Siri, and then she takes you down the wrong path. And then it's Alexa, she takes you down the right path. So it's like asking Alexa, how do I get home? 
Okay, random thought. So the paths are right. You send, the message gets it right, actually. You send me in the right direction. Okay, right direction. So the paths are straight. They're correct. They're level. They're smooth. They're well-maintained. And really what you could say is what David sees here is you have a shepherd who's a good guide. A shepherd who's a good guide. Uh, and the good shepherd is, is not about tiring the sheep out. The shepherd knows what lies ahead, knows the route, knows the terrain, uh, leads in such a way to get the sheep to their destination. The paths are right. Does this make sense to you? Uh, when I was a little younger, I had an experience of, of understanding this a little better, and now I'm getting even more. It was back in 2011. Uh, I, my first field attempt on Mount Baker, I was with a few friends, one of our friends, Tom Norwood, who worships here. I was living on the East Coast. I wasn't climbing mountains much then. And I think I've told this story before, but so just listen in as if it's brand new. But, uh, you know, Baker, I love Baker. I love climbing Mount Baker. It's my, easily my favorite kind of glacier climb in the, in the Cascades. But I've done it enough that, I, you know, I get a little bored with it, if you can imagine. You know, you get a little bored just doing the same thing over and over. So I wanted like this quote-unquote new adventure. And so I had some friends who also did. And so I came up with this new route, like an epic route, you know. And right there, you just know something's wrong. Something quote-unquote off the beaten path. So we picked this route. Here's how it happened. We, uh, I picked this route where we're going to go on these two trails that are very infrequently used for even hiking, okay, let alone climbing. And uh, it was going to be a lot of bushwhacking, but I thought, well, it's only six miles. Usually it's about two miles an hour uphill, so I'll just factor three. We'll be, we'll be there plenty of time, you know, to base camp, and then I'll know the route. Well, we arrived at the ranger station at 5 p.m., <clears throat> which was not a good, a good thing because we got a really late start. Two of my climbing buddies didn't have these prussics tied. You need prussics to go up a, a rope if you're in a glacier. So we needed to do that. So it took us a little longer. Um, we got to the trailhead around 7 p.m., started hiking. You can kind of see where this is going. We hit snow uh, in this woods that I didn't really understand. I had maps around 4,000 feet. There was a big snow year kind of like this year. Um, and, so, and it was suddenly dark. So around 10 p.m., we were literally lost in these really dense woods um, with, with no discernible trail. That was actually the only way I was going to find our way through this because the maps were just useless to me at this point. And there was no trail. The GPSs back then were terrible. So, like, if you were in woods, you know, they just conk out. So no GPS. We literally spent the next three to four hours wandering in, like, circles in these woods. I think it was just a gully. We were in a gully going in circles till about midnight, and we got into this clearing, and it was thankfully clear outside, and I could see Mount Baker above us, and I kind of knew exactly where we were, which is below this huge ridge, which we weren't going to get over, and I knew right then, wrong path. <laughs> we're on the wrong path, and we didn't summit the mountain that time. It was a total fail, and here's my point. A guide with merely vision, or a guide with a passion, or a guide like me with, like, wanting an epic adventure is not a good guide. It's not the guide you want to follow. And God does have these for us. He has vision for your life, passion for your life. It wants to take you on all sorts of adventures. But the God that Jacob's, or that David sees in this psalm, this good shepherd, is the God putting you on the right path. The right path. Which is not just any path. I mean, the shepherd guides you not on a random path toward an uncertain destination, but the right path. The right path. The pathway toward knowing God. So he puts me on the right path for his name's sake. Now that phrase, I'll be honest, 
is confusing to me. So I'm going to try and unpack it real quick as we conclude. I don't know if I have it all dialed up yet, so it might take me a little more time and more life. But um, here's one thought. Do you realize the intrinsic power that names have? Not only, in, not only in our culture, but in the Bible. Like whenever you come across somebody's name, there's power. I mean, we sing that song, there's power in the name, right? There's power in the name. I mean, whenever you come to like a genealogy, take Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, for example. I would encourage you sometime to read that carefully. Because Jesus, in at least Matthew's genealogy, it's a, it's a theological genealogy. He's not related to those people by blood. So you have Tamar in there, and you have Rahab in there. You have Eve in there. Well, in Luke's genealogy, you have Eve. I mean, why are the gospel writers putting these names in this genealogy of Jesus? It's to tell you something about the person, who he values, what he values, what he's about. Uh, there's so much power in names. I was watching um, that new show uh, by David Letterman, my, my next guest. Have you guys been watching this on Netflix? So really awesome if you like Dave Letterman. And I kind of grew up in the 90s, and so I'm missing David Letterman right now. I like all the other guys, but I'm missing him. So he's interviewing people. He interviewed Barack Obama and then George Clooney, and then um, the next one's going to be with Malal, Malal, Malalia. Help me. Help me. You know who I'm talking about. I totally messed her name up. There's power in names. So George Clooney is ta- telling this story about in, uh, the, when in Darfur was ex- exploding about, I guess, 15 years ago or so, or 20. It's been a while. He was wealthy enough at that time and cares a lot about that region. He bought a satellite. <laughs> he, like, bought a satellite and literally just, they just took pictures of that region for a couple of years. Just took pictures of these uh, these warlords basically taking over communities. And then they, they decided to go to, um, with their pictures, to the United Nations and say, well, they wrote an article in the New York Times and said, hey, this is happening. And they're like, wow. And they got a Pulitzer for it. And literally nothing happened. Like we did nothing about it. We knew this war was just burning down this entire region of the world. Nothing happened. So you know what George Clooney said in this interview? He said, well, you know what I did next? I realized that all of these warlords had money. So I just went to their banks, went to Chase, and I went to all the banks that they kept money in. And I took the pictures there, and I took the article from the New York Times. I said, hey, I know, I know, um, I know they have their money in your bank, and you probably didn't know at the time that they were doing this, but now you do. And so here's the deal. We know the people at New York Times, and they can publish an article about you or you can freeze their assets. Your, your decision. Every bank froze the assets of these warlords in, in Sudan and, and basically stopped the war because they had no money to fuel it. And it, it just occurred to me when I watched that, oh, there's such power names. The banks just cared about their name. They really didn't care about Darfur as much as their own credibility. Does this make sense to you? And, and so God is saying here, there's just such immense power in the name that we share with him. He, he leads us on the right path for his name's sake. There's power in the name that we share with him. The path toward, we're leading, uh, being led on the path toward understanding the name that we possess. The name of God. His name's sake. And in other words, our life journey is really about discovering who we are. That's what it's about. You're on a, a long journey on the right path of, dis, of discovering not yourself, but of who you are, who you belong to, who, whose you are the right straight path of identity, uh, which, is, which is a move ultimately as we really come to understand Christianity 
less about following. I know I've been talking about following God and more about being filled by God. This is a really important move. The early disciples were always being invited to leave and follow, leave and follow. And I said that already. But as Christianity developed, as you read Paul's letters especially, what you begin to notice is this awareness that we're no longer merely followers of Christ, but now we are filled by Christ. And this is huge for us. Uh, following's good, but it can wear you out. So Christ says, let me fill your life first. Paul says in Colossians 3, I'm dead. I died a long time ago. I died on that road to Damascus. And he says, now I'm filled, so filled with the life of Christ. This is Colossians 3. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who is living within me. I'm filled by Christ. In other words, when it lands home, I'm led on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I realize that uh, it's not about me. (laughs) The life I'm living, this sermon, church today, your workplace, your family, it's not about you. It's just not about you. And when you can come to that point, it's not about recovering your life, recovering your sense of comfort, like you're a lost sheep, you're tipped over. not about getting back on your feet again so you can wander off in your direction. It's not about getting your ticket punched to heaven. It's this recognition that there's no me left. And that's not bad. Because Christianity, no me, is Christ. It's all Christ. His name's sake. Christ in me as me. Uh, now, when you begin to see that, as if you're the sheep, <laughs> listen, he's expressing his life through you. He's the sh- Here's the deal. <laughs> We're so identified with Christ as our shepherd. When you read the Gospels, I begin to see that his life is my life. He is the sheep that I once was. I know this is mixing a big metaphor here, but Jesus is the sheep that you once were and now are. And if you flip over to John 10, I'll just read this for you, but you can go there sometime. Um, This is the place after John 4 went with the woman at the well. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. So he has all these I am statements in the gospel of John. Here's what he says in John 10. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Okay. And then he talks about this hired hand going off when the wolf comes. And then he says, I lay down my life for my sheep again in in verse 15. When Jesus says, I, I love my sheep so much that when the wolves come, I lay my life down for my sheep, there's this little word for in there. This, I guess is a preposition uh, that we don't get across in English. It actually means in place of. I lay my life down in place of my sheep. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd who becomes the sacrificial lamb. I'm the only shepherd who ever became the lamb. Uh, I'm the shepherd. When the wolf comes, I will, I will lose anything, anything, even my own life, than, rather than see my sheep die. I'd rather lose my life than see one of my sheep die. I'd rather lose my glory and lose the universe I created rather than see my sheep perish. And this is so amazing, friends. In other words, it, it's, if he's just a shepherd and we're just the sheep, we're just following Jesus step by step along the way, uh, we're his treasure. He owns the whole world. He owns the universe. He owns you. You're his. Uh, all the gold, all the sheep, that's good. But what Jesus is saying here is, is I, I've so bound up my heart with yours. I'm so intoxicated by love for you. I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to stand in your place. I laid down my life for you. There's never been probably a stronger statement of, of the worth of human dignity here, uh, of, the, of the worth of the human person than here. The worth, the affirmation of you than right there. You, and that's why you need to hear it. Like Jesus is looking into your heart today and saying, all the way to the bottom in the darkness there, I see something infinitely precious. 
I see someone that I'm willing to, I'm going to die for you. Every one of you, not just the world and its brokenness, but you, your fear, your shame, and your anxiety, even your cynicism and doubt. I lay down my life for you. We're going to celebrate Good Friday in a couple weeks here, and uh, we're going to talk about the death of Jesus. So kind of a little teaser for there. I mean, there's a number of reasons why Jesus dies on the cross. There's the holiness of God, the justice of God, the divine will of God, all those things, right? But those aren't brought out here. Jesus is talking about his death. I lay down my life for my sheep. He pulls in this Psalm 23 metaphor. I just lay my life down. And we're seeing inside his mind, his heart, his soul, what it makes him human. And we're told that Jesus sees something of such infinite value and worth. He's so attracted to our humanness as another human being. He'd come to understand the worth of humanity through his own experience. And he's so deeply moved by that, he decides, hey, I'm going to die now for this. He, he, he died for humanity. He died for you because he understood the worth of your life. Does this make sense? So that, that's why the good shepherd leads us down right paths for his name's sake, because you're worth it. Every one of you are worth it. And, and, and so he wants you to share. He wants to continue to share in your humanity. Your humanity, is, and it's broken, is worth sharing in. Union, that's the point of union with Christ. He wants to remain in your life, in your brokenness, in your story. He wants to stay with you for his name's sake. So here's how I want to conclude. Maybe just some questions, and I'll just invite our worship leaders back up as we do this. Uh, a couple groups here. You might be this first group of that silly sheep. You know, you, you need to be turned back right again. Uh, you kind of have found yourself flipped over. And uh, you're outcast, you're downcast. You've been there for quite a while. And you're like trying to get yourself, you're working the problem. You're trying to figure it out. Maybe you need to, like, I'm not going to lay down on the floor and show you how it would work, but the sheep can't get over, right? So maybe you just need to be still and know that God is God. Just wait. And just say, God, connect. I know that story in John 4 is true. Connect with me. Your desire is to connect. Your desire is to restore. You're the good shepherd. I need your help. I can't get, I can't figure this one out. This is just maybe you find your floor in your house or your bed and just like stick your feet in the air. I don't know. I mean, just symbolically, God, connect with me. I'm a lost sheep cast out. Or perhaps you're noticing that you're like me on that Mount Baker climb and you're on this wrong path. Like you are circling in the woods. It's dark. And, or maybe they're turning into righteous ruts. Like you're just doing right. You're trying to do justice and you're just not, ugh, life is just not full of joy anymore. Uh, you're being your own guide. And so maybe you need to invite God to take the lead and just say, hey, I got no map. I got no compass. My GPS is conking out here. So God, lead me on the right path. Uh, and maybe it's you realizing that it's for your sake <laughs> and you've been taking the credit and you're worried about your reputation and your bottom line and so maybe God needs to, in that moment, restore you to your identity, which is being identified with him. These are all just options, whatever it is. Here's what I want to invite us into. A clear understanding as a community that we are led beside quiet waters. Rest for restoration. 
and we're guided along right paths. Journey for identity. Does this make sense? So I, wanna, I, want you to, I want you to say that with me, okay? We're going to say these two verses together. You might have it memorized from childhood. He leads me beside quiet waters. We'll say this together. He restores my soul, okay? He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. It says his declar- declarations. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And then he guides me along right paths for his name's sake. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. I want to just pray for the Lord to restore us today. Let's pray and then we'll worship. God, we, we confess that we often try and guide ourselves. I confess that, God. That story of just being in the woods, God, is really my life. Trying to figure it out. Trying to do it myself. Thinking that I'm in control. And so, God, we as a community confess collectively now that we need to be led. We are followers. You want us to follow you, which is trust you, which is put our lives in your hands. And God, we confess that some of that comes out of a place of just a broken image of who you are. And so God, we, we confess also that we, you're the good shepherd. You're so good. And we're going to sing about that, God, but we want to just pray together, God, that you're so good, you want to connect with us, and so we ask you, God, to come and restore our lives, pur- uh, our purpose, our identity here. Um, help us understand who we are. Restore our souls, God, we pray. We thank you that's who you are, and so we can trust you to be that, not only today, but in the days to come. So we trust you, God, we trust you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.